Okay, let's turn to Romans. I'm not late. Just looks like that. It's... We want to turn to Psalm 98, too, because we might even get there tonight. If you don't have a Bible, there's some. Still, are there Bibles up? There's three. Oh, we got to get some more Bibles. Just kidding. Let's take a couple moments of silent prayer to prepare to concentrate in the usual way, just maintaining quiet receptivity for the sake of others. Father, we always consider it an immense privilege to gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our King and our Lord, and who is both Lord of the dead and the living through his resurrection. We recognize his presence here with us, for wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. And we recognize the value of each person who's gathered here tonight, valued because of God's unrestricted, unconditional love and grace. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'll open the eyes of our understanding tonight so that we might see marvelous things out of your word. And we know that the sum total of all those marvelous things is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Grant us, therefore, a clear view of the ark so that after 38 years, we may enter into the land, cross the Jordan, and conquer as you give us the grace to do so. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're just mentioning to Dave in the hall, Dave Bradshaw in the hall, that he asked me a question or made an observation about Ephesians, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, on Sunday morning. And I mentioned to him that Ephesians was actually written before Romans. And I didn't know that before, but recently the cutting-edge study and research on this from the lower-blade data in the epistles themselves has revealed that Ephesians was, in fact, written before Romans. Now, there's a lot of people that want to say Paul didn't write Ephesians, and the reason for that is, on many occasions, they say, well, Paul didn't deal with the same things he dealt with in Romans about justification by faith, etc., so it couldn't have been written by Paul. But in fact, Ephesians is the pure message that Paul brought to the world. And it had to do with a thing called the mystery. As you know, in the Greek, the word is musterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, musterion. And Paul wrote about it. There's also a German term called nebenadressat, which means that lots of the epistles that Paul wrote were intended not just for the audience to whom it was sent, like Ephesus, but for many other places. For example, Corinth read Philippians. Paul wrote Philippians while he was in Corinth, and he was kind of hitting things in both cities. The epistle to the Ephesians may have been intended for Laodicea first, that place that we studied in Revelation that had such a problem with lukewarmness as the Son of Man addressed it. But the reason that Ephesians isn't like Romans is because Romans is dealing with two different Gospels in a dialectic of contradictories. There's two Gospels presented there, and Paul completely demolishes one that is based on the retribution or the retributive justice of God and demonstrates the Gospel that is totally, radically Christocentric, centered in Christ, God's Son, in which resurrection as well as the death of Christ is a saving power. And the resurrection also has the power of salvation, as does his death. As oftentimes we think only his death is what saves, but it's his death and his resurrection. In fact, his ascension are all part of one saving event. The gospel that he rails against, and it's a knockdown drag out. By 320 of Romans, he's knocked down and dragged out his opponent. He is a, a famous teacher at the time who brought a gospel that was not centered in Christ. It was a gospel that was based on a conditional contract 
as if God makes a contract with people bilaterally. If you do this, I'll do this. This this other teacher, Paul represented by a speech in Romans one eighteen to thirty two, which is not Paul's voice. It is presenting that man's prelude to his gospel. And in Romans 2, we have this man speaking when he says things like, those who do good and persist in good will inherit eternal life and glory and honor. And those who persist in evil will receive, meaning in the last judgment day, they will receive anguish and tribulation, as if God is a God of retributive justice. But Paul inserts in Romans 2.16 that that day when the thoughts and intents of people will be judged, Paul says, but according to my gospel, that judgment is by Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ stands in for the human race, and everyone is judged according to him who is filled with grace and truth. Everyone is judged according to righteousness, and that's what I want to hit Soon, But if Ephesians was written, and I did not know this until very recently, Ephesians was written before Romans. In fact, so was Philippians, and so was First and Second Corinthians. And if you want to study this, and I don't recommend it to everyone, but if you're one of those people that likes to get into deep theological stuff and New Testament studies, Douglas Campbell's done the homework on it, and it's called Framing Paul, and it's quite a recent book, and it's extremely revelatory and insightful. But in Ephesians, before Paul ever thought of Romans, he talks about God's intent, the will of God, God's intent, and God's determination, as we've studied many times in Revelation. In Ephesians 1.9, the intent of God, in fact, it's called the mystery of God's intent, the revealed secret of God's determined intent, what he's going to do with mankind, with the human race, with creation at large. And that is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the pure gospel. God's intent, which he will fulfill, and that's emphatic from Isaiah 46.10, I will do all my will is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus, to bring everything universally into the saving act of God in Christ. That's the gospel that Paul proclaimed. And so there's another word I want to look at tonight. We're going to be hitting the order of... I cheated and went to the end of the book where he has the order of all the epistles and when they were written, uh, at least 10 of them, the pastorals he deals with in another level. But... It's, it's very interesting, and it's so far, it's extremely, it's just so fun to read something like this after you've studied these things for 45 years, and you, you're so familiar with the content of the epistles, but then to see that content move into a kind of order and category where you say, oh, that's why Paul wrote this at this time for this reason, to address this problem, and many times he was dealing with a pseudo-gospel. Second Corinthians, he talked about super-apostles who were ministers of Satan. Galatians, as you know, he speaks about some teacher who has brought another gospel, and Paul said it doesn't even have the dignity of being called another because it's called you away from him who called you by the pure grace of Christ to this other gospel. And in Romans, we don't see it as clearly, but a false teacher emerges from the shadows. And that, to me, is the key to the interpretation of Romans. Romans was written in 52, and that's the last of the epistles, the ten epistles to the churches and to Philemon that Paul wrote, saying nothing about the pastorals for now. Romans was last, and so we're dealing with Romans first, which is just kind of the way we do stuff around here. We're going to be backing into some of these other things. There's another word. It's the catchphrase, and it's, fa- it's often seen as the key word in the book of Romans, and it's called dikaiosune, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E, dikaiosune. And that is usually translated as righteousness, and so, or justice even. But I have said to you before, 
And you remember our scissors analogy. Sometimes we make a statement with an upper blade. We've got to bring the lower blade up to meet that blade in the scissors analogy. The lower blade data is the scriptures. Is it really true that dikaiosune, by definition, is the saving act of God in Christ? That's the righteousness of God. If you look at the righteousness of God purely on a judicial or legal or forensic way, as most interpreters of Romans that I've read consider it, then his righteousness is a justice that's retributive. It pays back in kind with violent retribution. And Paul's gospel doesn't say that. Dikaiosune, according to Paul, is the saving act of God in Christ. Now, if you look to Romans 1.17, you see a key verse in Romans. Paul says, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Guess what word that is? You know, apocalypto. It's the same word that John begins the book of Revelation with, only it's in the verbal form. The righteousness of God is being revealed in it, the gospel. And this was taken, and this was only discovered recently by Richard Hayes. This was a quotation or a an allusion, at least, to Psalm 98 in the Septuagint translation. Now, Psalm 98 in the English is Psalm 97 in the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's what Paul quotes, and that's what is quoted most often, if not all the time, in the New Testament. When the Old Testament is quoted, it's almost always the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So this is where I studied it, is Psalm 97 in the Septuagint Greek. But let's start first with Romans 1.1, where Paul says... Introducing himself, and the series, incidentally, that we're involved in here is called Better Call Paul. The Corinthians had a whole bunch of questions, and the leadership in Corinth went to Ephesus to visit Paul, and they wrote a, there was a letter written to Paul that we don't have, and he, a letter that he wrote to them that we don't have, and the leadership got together and said, well, we don't know quite what to do when the Jews and the influx of the Jewish Christians in among the Gentile Christians, what are we going to do? Because the Jews won't eat these foods from the strip district that have been offered to idols. And what are we going to do about that? What about marriage? What about an unbeliever and a believer marriage? What, what do we do about that? There's nothing in the Torah that says anything about that. And so they said, we better call Paul. And they did call Paul and Paul answered. And Paul answered by saying, there are certain things that Gentiles are not supposed to do. One, become circumcised, and two, enter into a comprehensive obedience to the law of Moses. That's not what God wants. There are some things that God wants the Gentiles to imitate that are Jewish practices of the Torah, and one of them is the sexuality of, that is enjoined by the scriptures and the practices of sexuality that the Torah represents, which, of course, has to do with marriage and sexuality within marriage. But Paul wrote Romans because he was on the way to Spain, and on the way through to Spain, he was going to come to Rome. He was also going to visit Jerusalem before he got there. And so he writes to a city that he had not been to before, that he did not found this church. And so he wrote to these people, and he wrote this way, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he use such a word, doulos, for slave? It's not because he feels himself as under the just authority of God, and he has to kowtow and bow. Doulos here means somebody who has reached a universal willingness to do the will of another. And it's this case, I call it an imperial slave, because Paul pictures himself standing like Nehemiah did before the king, the cupbearer, like Nehemiah did before the king, willing to do whatever the king says. 
Like I was reading today, one, one famous general said, they said, what are you going to do if the president-elect asks you to be such and such in such and such a position? What are you going to say? And he's going to say, yes, Mr. President. That is a willingness. It's a universal willingness. If you're called upon by this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are universally willing. That means you're ready to do whatever he asks. And Paul reached that place of universal willingness. I think it takes a little time for Christians to get there because they first have to understand God and his benevolence and his kindness and his, his unrestricted love and his pure unconditional grace. So I translate this as this. Paul, an, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ. Notice that John, the author of the Rev, the book, also called himself a doulos of Jesus Christ. And then spoke of Jesus Christ as being king and constituting believers as a kingdom of priests. We don't need a priest. We are priests. And Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And he's constituted us as a kingdom of priests to his God. And the reason that we know that he's king is not just because he's divine, but because he is of the seed of David of the descendancy according to the flesh from David, the royal kingly line of Judah, and because he was resurrected from the dead. And resurrected from the dead, he is the firstborn from the dead. All the dead, all people that have died or will die, will be raised to life and glory, because as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. That's just the fact of the gospel. And that doesn't mean some, that means all. But when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was the firstborn from the dead. And when God said, today I have begotten you, that is a formula used by ancient kings where the king pronounced his successor to be king that day. And Jesus Christ, therefore, by his resurrection from the dead, was declared to be the son of God with power, and he was shown to be the king of kings and the Lord of both the living and the dead. So that's why I say right from the start in Romans 1.1, Paul is an imperial slave of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus Christ is the king. He's called the king of kings in Revelation. But here's where Psalm 98 comes in, in your Bible. But I'll go to Psalm 97 because it's the same psalm only in the Greek. Listen carefully to the wording of this. In Psalm 98, a psalm, speaking of David, a psalm of David. Sing to the Lord a new song. That's a theme that we see in the book of Revelation, a new song. Because he has performed wonderfully. His right hand, his holy arm has gotten salvation for him. Please note that his right arm, which is his power, his saving power, has gotten salvation for him. Well, how does God get salvation for himself? Well, I'll tell you how God gets salvation for himself by raising his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Jesus Christ required saving. In Psalm 22, he said to his father, save your darling, save your only one, save your darling or your only one from the power of the lion, out of the lion's mouth. And so by resurrection, God brought salvation to him, Christ, his son. And when God brought salvation to his son who was crucified by resurrecting him, he at the same time resurrected all humankind. Because Paul recognized this. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Why? Because I've been raised together with him. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Another point that Paul's gospel brings up, you are not saved by grace through your faith. You are saved by pure, unconditional grace from God through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. God hasn't made a contract with man. God has made a covenant with man. 
Therefore, God, if God made a contract, he'd say, you do this and you'll live. And that's what the law says in Leviticus 18.5. If you do this, you will live. That sounds like a contrast or a contract. It's bilateral. The covenant is unilateral. God simply says, live. There's obligations to this contract. After you're in, there's a requirement of faithfulness. But the requirement of faithfulness is merely your participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the mediator. The covenant that God makes with us is unilateral. It's fulfilled on his part. And the mediator, there is a mediator in this covenant named Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and all of humankind, who gave himself as a ransom for all according to 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. So, but look at this. He has performed wonderfully. Ultimately, that refers to God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He has performed wonderfully. His right hand, his holy arm, has gotten salvation for him. Isaiah picked up on this psalm in Isaiah 53, 1, and says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Apocalypto is the word, the key word we're looking for here. His holy arm has gotten salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. I'm reading the Greek text of the Septuagint, which Paul quotes, or Paul alludes to, in the key verse in Romans. So be, be aware of that. He has revealed. Now, I don't want to get too fancy with exegesis tonight, but this is lower blade data, so it's got to happen. And the word here for revealed, I'll just do the English part of it, or the English transliteration, apocalypto. Psalm 98.2, the Lord has made known his salvation. Soterion, he has revealed his righteousness. Please notice that. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. God has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. How does God make known his salvation? By revealing his righteousness. Let's flip that around. How does God make known his righteousness? By revealing his salvation. And so, therefore, this is why the psalm, as we're going to see by the end, he tells the whole world, the whole earth, all the inhabitants of the planet Earth, and he tells all the world and all creation to rejoice because God is coming to judge the earth. Now, why would someone want to rejoice? Because we think of, well, he's coming and I saw a bumper sticker, Jesus coming is coming and he's really, and then they use the word, but I'll just say ticked ticked off, but they said something else. And that's the view that people have. He's going to come and set things right. He's going to come and judge half the population or more and throw them into hell. He's going to burn up the universe and start all over again and save a few lucky lottery winners. People who got in through faith, their own faith, and people who stayed in through behaving, that kind of thing. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about the righteousness of God being God's own act of salvation in Christ Jesus, which in, I will say boldly, is a universal salvation. And here it is. Watch how this unfolds. This is my translation from the Greek. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, stay there, but look quickly just to get the dramatic effect to Romans 1.17. For in it, that's the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed, and that is an allusion to Isaiah 28.16. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, is being revealed, apocalypto. Righteousness, he takes from Psalm 98. Apocalypto, he takes from Psalm 98 or 97 in the Septuagint. 
And he reveals that by the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from, and doesn't say faith, it says faithfulness, from faithfulness to faithfulness. The gospel is good news to start with. I am not ashamed of the good news of God, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who has faith, which means everyone who participates in Christ's faithfulness. And then this teacher would say, to the Jew first, and then the Greek, to the Jew first, and then the heathen, to the Jew first. And then Paul kind of concedes that, and he says, for in it, or by it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is his saving act as a king to rescue his people. That's what's revealed in the gospel. That's why it's good news. The gospel doesn't reveal a God of retribution and payback. It reveals a God of who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not only not perish, but have the life of the coming age now. And we'll see how that is congruent with our message that it's not by faith that we're justified. It's by Christ's faithfulness, by Christ's faithfulness. And that's because of, again, this key verse. For in it, the dikaiosune, the saving act of God in Christ, is being revealed from faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness. To faithfulness, that's your participation in Christ's faithfulness. Just as it is written, the righteous one, and I'm going to be showing you, that means Christ himself. The righteous one is Christ. Ananias said to Saul, also known as Paul, and God says better call Paul, so he did on the road to Damascus and called him by his grace and shifted him from the kingdom of darkness and murderous intentions into the kingdom of his son and transformed him into the intent of love toward Christ and the body of Christ. That's, that was an act of grace. That wasn't Paul becoming obedient. That was an act of God in Christ for Paul. And once Paul was called, he was told to go to the house of a man named Ananias, a Christian man, just a regular Christian like us who lived in Damascus, unlike us. And when Paul was there with scales over his eyes and he couldn't see, he was forced to be instructed by this ordinary Christian. One thing Ananias said to him is it was God's will that you should see the righteous one and hear his voice. The righteous one is Christ. It's not just any old person. It's Christ. And if we have righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Why? Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.19. What did that say? It said... There was an act of God performed in Christ, and it was saving. That's righteousness. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins or trespasses to them. And then Paul says, and to me and others, this word of reconciliation was entrusted with us. We proclaim a God who has reconciled the world already. That's Paul's gospel. But throughout Romans, especially Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20, especially, you see, if you punctuate it rightly, you see the gospel of this other teacher, which Paul knocks out, knocks down, and then drags him out. By 320, he's dragged the guy out. And he's shown that all the world is guilty before God. Now there's a righteousness from God revealed apart from the law. And that's what Paul, that's where Paul hits the ground running in 321 to 26. Then he shows that Abraham is not to be a paradigm of justification by faith, not in Romans 4. And then ends up in Romans 425 saying, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, was delivered up or over for our sins and raised up for our justification, which means our purely gracious deliverance. Because of his resurrection. Therefore, says Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, doesn't say that. It says, therefore, being delivered by the faithfulness of Christ demonstrated in his resurrection, we have peace with God. 
My prayer is that you'll have peace tomorrow around the dinner table. People say that people are expecting political discussions and angry people, kids coming home from college and fighting with their parents about the election, that kind of thing. Well, that's boring to me. But I've prayed for peace for all of you tomorrow, that you'll have a peaceful gathering and that you say, well, that's a miracle in my family. Exactly. God has done wondrously. He will do wondrously tomorrow. He will speak peace to your house, as Psalm 85, 8 says. But listen carefully. He has, let's go back now. The righteous one, Christ, will live, is a prophecy from Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous one will live, Because of his faithfulness or by his faithfulness, the righteous one is Christ. How does he live? By resurrection. Why does he live? By his faithfulness. Because he was obedient in his faithfulness to the death of the cross, God also highly exalted him, raised him from the dead. The righteous one will live by his fidelity. And our faith is merely a participation in the fidelity of Christ. That's what faith means throughout Hebrews. That's what faith means throughout Paul's epistles. It is not the means by which you secure salvation or justification. It is a gifted participation in Christ's faithfulness given to people that he shifts by an apocalyptic act of grace from sin into Christ. And I love this because this is my testimony. My testimony was the experience of being shifted from sin into Christ, condemnation into a kind of deliverance from that, and then God gave me faith. And I so I, in affiliations I've been with before, I could never give my testimony because they said, well, that doesn't really work that way. You're supposed to have faith first and then God bring. No, that's not what it worked. That's not how it worked for me. So I'm glad I finally caught up with the right gospel that matches what happened to me in my situation in the dead of winter in 1972 in northern Vermont at the campus of the University of Vermont. Now, and our, a witness to that was here recently, Ted Lapis, my roommate, just showed up here one day, always was like that. Ted actually bounced and dribbled a basketball for two weeks, nonstop. And, well, there are reasons for that that I won't go into. But, I mean, he did sleep. But then he, and one day, our roommate, whose name was Clayton Hutchins, and he was a football player, and he was from Dartmouth, and he was about 275 and built like a house, came out in his BVDs one night when Ted was dribbling the basketball, and he says, Stop. And Ted went, boom. And he said, if you bounce that ball again, I will break it. And Ted stopped forever. It was, a, it was like the end of a habit. It's like God saying, that's enough of that. And you go, okay. I didn't have to go through a program. I didn't have to go through this and that. And he just said, stop, and he stopped. But that was one of the, uh, that's a memory. Forgive me, I'm old. But... The righteous one will live because of his fidelity. That's actually a prophecy by the prophet Habakkuk, which is the key prophetic text of Romans, that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, would be raised from the dead as a kind of reward for his fidelity. You see, what we get into heaven, you talk about coattails in a way, we get into heaven based on the fidelity of the righteous one not based on our faith to get in or our faithfulness to stay in. Paul's gospel doesn't leave you with an anxiety about the end times and about the final judgment. Paul does not even proclaim that there will be a judgment of retribution for anyone in the future, but that the judgment and the judged one is the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So when God judges the earth, he gives salvation to the earth and sets the earth right in a saving way, not in a retributive way. So that's all going to be coming together. 
Let's go back to Psalm 97 or 98 if you've got the English Bible. Chances are you do. Psalm 98.1, a psalm of David, sing to the Lord a new song because he's performed wonderfully. His right hand, this is, of course, anticipating the new creation which happens in Christ. His right hand, his holy arm, has gotten salvation for him. That's God has gotten salvation for Christ. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That's all the Gentiles. You say, what about the Jews? What about Israel? Well, look at verse 3. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob. This is kind of a retrospective from where, from the ultimate future. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob. What does Romans 11.26 say? All Israel is to be saved. All Israel will be saved. What does 27 say? Because the Lord will come from Zion and take away ungodliness from Jacob. This is salvation for Jacob, salvation for Israel, all of Israel, because God has shut up or imprisoned, literally using a prison motif, he has imprisoned all, both Jews and Gentiles, in unbelief or disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32, which I think is one of the key verses of the book of Romans. He has revealed his righteousness, says verse 2, in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Notice this one. All the extremities of the earth, the limits of the earth, have seen the salvation of our God. That's pointing, that's looking at the future and the future looking back at the past all creation is going to be liberated from its slavery to corruption. We know that from Romans eight nineteen to 23, which is part of Paul's gospel. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the extremities of the earth have seen the salvation, soterion, of our God. Verse 4, shout for joy to God. All the earth sing and exult and sing psalms. Now, Paul said in Ephesians 5.19 to be singing psalms. Why? Because he sees this as already inaugurated, already fulfilled. He sees this as already inaugurated. It's not where it can be and where it will be, but we already know. We see through a glass darkly. We see this day obscurely, but we do see it. Those of us of faith have the extraordinary privilege of knowing these things in advance. And all creation, including all the population of the human race, is going to see the fulfillment of this when Christ returns and when he reveals himself. And then we who have known in part will know completely, and then at the same time those who haven't known at all will know completely. But blessed are you if you know now. Blessed are you, said Jesus, because prophets and kings have desired to know what you know, and you know it. And I know there's a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine, a lot of people even in my, that I grew up with that don't believe what I believe, but I don't hold that against them. Just like when people ask me, what do you do? I say, I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me. And I do say that. As I said last week, one guy actually said, oh, I don't, you know. Once, you're, once they find out you're a preacher, they immediately start thinking, did I ever say anything like a four-lettered word that would have offended? You can see them going back in their mind, and then they straighten out their speech and all this stuff. And So you almost have to act unlike a preacher just to get them to relax again. That's just, uh, Brian, that's just a helpful note for you. And Pastor Stewart, you already know that. Now, Sing praise to the Lord with the kithara. It says harp, but it means more like guitar. Kithara, or lyre. With the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets made of beaten metal and, sound, and the sound by the trumpet made of horn. That's the, Greek, the Hebrew shofar. Make a joyous noise to lo... Notice what it says. What's it say in the English? To what? 
The what? You can say it out loud. It's okay. It's nine notes. The king. The king, which is what I said in the beginning. Paul is an imperial slave because Christ is the king. And righteousness is the act of God the king in his human representative by which he rescues his people. It's only right that a king would rescue his people without trying to say whether they deserve it or not. Paul's fighting a gospel of desert, and I don't mean the, the meal after the meal. I mean of deserving. He is against a gospel of deserving. There's no desert. So the righteous act of the king or the saving act of the king, righteousness is the king because he has protection over his people. It's the right thing for the king to ask in a rescuing type manner toward his people. And with the gospel, his people are all the nations and Israel or Jacob. All Israel will be saved and God will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. If he said in Abraham, rather than Adam, then we could say that the salvation's localized in a people that descended from Abraham. But he said Adam. So we're talking about a universal human race in which salvation is wrought. So check it now. We'll close pretty soon. The king, the Lord. Let the sea be moved to praise and the fullness of it, all that's in it, as Revelation 5.13 says, The earth and all those who inhabit it. The rivers will clap their hands together. The mountains will exalt with joy. Why? Because all creation, according to Romans 8, 19 to 23, will have been liberated from its slavery to corruption. When the sons of God are manifested in glory. The rivers will clap their hands together. That's a poetic personification the mountains will exalt with joy for he will have come to judge the earth wait a minute we hit this before but what are you talking about he's coming to judge the earth so everybody on the earth rejoices and exalts and sings and celebrates so it must be that the hellfire and brimstone turn or burn preachers must have it wrong that god is coming to judge by throwing most of his human creatures into the lake of fire where they will never get out and he's going to blow up the earth and all the works of the earth in a misinterpretation of second Peter three. And so you better fear and tremble. No, it says here, let me, let me see if I can read it rightly here for he will have come to judge the earth, to judge the inhabitants of the earth in righteousness. Hmm. Righteousness. He will judge the earth by his saving act in Christ. He judges the earth. What does it mean? Well, what about bad people that have no righteousness? God's saving act gives them righteousness. What about people that are oppressed and have no justice? God's saving act gives them justice. And so all the earth rejoices. I thought of that in the sea. Only one time in my life have I ever walked on the beach and seen dolphins jump way out of the water, two of them like this, go 15, 16 feet in the air. And, and I thought, when I thought of this, when God says, let the sea and everything that's in it rejoice, I didn't take that literally of flipper coming out and saying, praise you, Lord. I took that as everything in the sea, whether it's... A manatee or a porpoise or a dolphin is going to rejoice and show itself by leaping into the air out of the sea. And just it's because when God comes, when Christ comes to judge the earth, the whole creation is going to be liberated. That's part of Paul's gospel. The unchained gospel of Paul starts in Romans 5 1 in earnest and it goes through Romans 8. 5 through 8 is Paul's unchained gospel. 
Romans 1 through 4, after the introduction that we're just finishing up here on 117, there is a block speech of this false teacher from 118 to 32. Then Paul says, you, speaking to him, not to the Jew, but a Jewish teacher, you're without excuse that judge another. And then he goes into a conversation, which I'm going to reproduce for you. Thanks again to Douglas Campbell. I'm going to reproduce for you the conversation Paul has with this guy, because there's no quotation marks in the Greek New Testament, none. The New Testament is not, there's no punctuation in the sense of quotation. But Campbell has done us a great favor by showing us the dialogue that Paul has with this opponent. And then he defeats the opponent, and then I can't wait to get to it. The gospel unchained. That's where we're headed. But look at seven. Let's, so let the sea be moved. The rivers will clap their hands in verse eight. The mountains will exalt with joy for he will have come to judge the earth, to judge the inhabitants of the earth in righteousness. That is by a saving act. Is God's justice retributive or is it transformative? Is it damning or is it saving? Is it saving of some or saving of all the inhabitants of the earth, all the nations, all of Jacob, all of Israel, all the creatures of the earth, the creatures of the sea, the creatures of the forest, the creatures of the mountains, and the universe itself? If God is who he says he is, it has to be that good. It has to be that good. It's not too good to be true. It's true because of God's faithfulness. And because of God's unconditional, unrestricted love. If I didn't serve a God of unrestricted love, I'd have quit the ministry a long time ago. And when I thought he was a God of retributive justice, there were times when I was ready to quit. Then I discovered this. And I've been in a state of mild astonishment in the word since about 1994 or so. A state of mild astonishment. And it has to be mild because it would kill you. This thing's so good for you, it'll kill you. For you have come to judge the earth, to judge the inhabitants of the earth, and the peoples in uprightness. What does that mean, to judge the peoples in uprightness? It means, as Paul inserts a little phrase in Romans 2.16, look at it quickly and we'll close. It's not God will judge the thoughts and intents of the hearts of men according to my gospel. It's the other preacher saying God is going to judge the thoughts and intents, meaning retributively, of men. But then Paul puts a parenthesis, which according to my gospel, by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, by Jesus Christ. So all of our thoughts will be brought up in that sense, as 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, don't judge anything till the time comes when the Lord comes and judges the motives of the heart. But the judgment there isn't a retributive judgment, but a transformation of the thoughts of man because God judges by his son, Jesus Christ. And when we face our judge to whom God has entrusted all judgment, in John 5, 22 to 27, the son of man, when we face our judge... We will see that he is the same Jesus of the New Testament who took our judgment for us and was judged for us in that sense. And we will see a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. We will see a lamb having been slaughtered, standing in resurrection. And as Paul said to the heathen, the pagans on the Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17.31, because he, God, has set a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. But what is righteousness, according to Paul? He will judge the world according to his saving act in Christ by the man he has appointed. Having provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. And guess what happened when Jesus Christ was raised for his faithfulness? Everyone was raised with him because of his faithfulness. I can't tell you I'm saved by grace through faith. I can only tell you I'm saved by grace through Messiah's faithfulness. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God because if this is all about a contract where we have to be justified by works, including a work called faith, followed by a work called faithfulness or by a a comprehensive following of the rules of the Mosaic law, then Christ died for nothing. I don't want to live my life like Christ died for nothing. I don't want to live my life frustrating the grace of God by thinking that I secured forensic righteousness from God as a reward for my faith. And that's the whole reason why Paul wrote Ephesians first, because he, he just gave it all out right there. He said everything's going to be summed up in Christ. In Romans, he had to deal with a situation in which another gospel was being propounded. So a lot of people say, well, Paul couldn't have wrote Ephesians because there's nothing in there about justification by faith. Well, there's nothing in Romans from Paul about justification by faith either. That's from somebody else that he knocks down and drags out politely. Another gospel. And so this is how I've decided to approach Better Call Paul. I want to know what Paul was saying. I called him myself. I told you what his number is. If you weren't there Sunday, you'll have to figure it out. But it has something to do with unconditional grace. And of course, I'm using a, a figure of speech. But I want to know what Paul really meant. And now I see it like I never have before. It's a gospel of unconditional salvation. It's an apocalypse. It's a revelation of the saving act of God in Christ. It takes away all my eschatological anxiety, and I had plenty of it. Eschatological anxiety means fear of damnation, fear of the judgment, fear, if not for yourself, when I realized that I was okay because I was in Christ, I started to fear for family members that hadn't believed and other people who hadn't believed. That's all gone now. Perfect love drives drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with the wrong idea that God is a retributive God. Perfect love, and God is love, drives out all fear because fear is all about punishment. That's 1 John 4, 17 and 18. So that's all I'll say tonight. Tomorrow you can say, Thanksgiving, you can say a Thanksgiving prayer that the preacher stopped before 8 o'clock. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity. And we know, I've learned by experience, that what a preacher teaches doesn't really hit home until the Holy Spirit takes the same information and by recalling it and by causing it to come to the remembrance of the hearers, He brings the impact of the message. But may it suffice for us to know now that your gospel is an unconditional announcement of pure, unadulterated grace. And we can praise you and thank you and tomorrow give thanks that you're not a God of retributive justice, but a God of limitless benevolence.